We serve an awesome, almighty God. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Shane, for that. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, you know the story. There were two thieves that were crucified on either side of him, one on his left and one on his right. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that one of those thieves mocked him. Actually, they both mocked him for a while. But one specifically mocked him and saying, if you are the Christ, get yourself down from here and us. The other pleaded with him, remember me. And Jesus said to him, well, we'll see what Jesus said to him. But I want to point out these two thieves this morning because these two thieves represent two choices when it comes to Jesus Christ. We can either accept Jesus or we can reject him. You know, there's no in-between. Each human being has a choice. They either accept Christ, they place their faith in Christ, they trust him as Savior and Lord, or they reject him. They refuse to embrace him as Lord and Savior, and as a consequence, they spend their eternity without him. And that idea captures the topic of the message this morning. We enter into a new and our final section of Mark. We've made it all the way to chapter 14, and from chapter 14 through the rest of the, of the book, we're in what's known as the passion narrative. Mark's going to focus now on Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his torture, his death, and his resurrection. We're going to zoom in on the final days, literally the final days of Jesus' life. And in our passage that we are looking at this morning, we see several characters, and each of these characters responds to Jesus. And we see the religious leader's response, we see the disciples, or, or part of the disciples' response, we specifically see Judas's response, and of course we see this woman's response. And it's very interesting how these different groups respond. Most of them respond negatively. At different degrees, they respond negatively, some very negatively. And there's only one that responds positively. So what I want to do is I want to look at the various responses to Jesus in our passage. I'm breaking the mold a little bit this morning. Hang on. I have four points instead of three. Does that mean it's going to be a longer sermon? We'll see. But the first thing that I want to look at is the three negative responses to Jesus. Now, like I said, there's really only two responses to Jesus. We reject him or we accept him. But within this, what we see are different ways that rejection looks. It doesn't always look the same. Rejection of Jesus does not always look the same. So I want to unpack the three ways or the three forms that rejection can take that our text provides us this morning. So with that, I want to read for you again Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Your first point this morning is this. What response do the religious leaders have toward Jesus? They have open antagonism. We can respond to Jesus through open antagonism. That is one way we can reject Jesus. Now, in our timeline in the book of Mark, like I said, we're in the final week of Jesus' life. Mark started this week in chapter 11 with the triumphal entry. You might remember that. Jesus had ministry to do in Jerusalem, now, we've come four days or so since that time. The, week is draw the weekend, rather, is drawing near. And it's an important weekend for the Jews. They were gearing up to celebrate the Passover and the unleavened bread, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, the Passover, that was celebrated every year. It was a time when the Israelites were, were it was remembering the time, rather, when the Israelites were slaves to Egypt slaves in Egypt, and the angel of death passed over the houses that were marked in blood, sparing the life of the firstborn of that house. You may remember that story. 
The feast of the unleavened bread follows just after the Passover. It's when the Israelites left Egypt and they made this flat unleavened bread in their haste to depart and, by, and to remember, to commemorate this time, there's actually uh, instructions on how to celebrate this time, on how to remember this time in Deuteronomy chapter 16. These feasts were celebrated together. So think of it this way. Think of it as the United States celebrating the 4th of July, commemorating our independence, and then spending a week after that eating turkey, like on Thanksgiving. Not many of you would object to that, I'm sure, but there you go. 4th of July, Thanksgiving combo. That's kind of what we're looking at here. Now, what's going on in our passage as these festivals are approaching? Look back to verse 1. It says, And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now, the chief priests and the scribes, they were two of the main groups in the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish high court. And this, you know, if you've been following along in our study, this is not the first time that we've encountered this. We actually read about this way back in chapter 3. Way back in chapter 3, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and I told you then, two groups that not norm normally did not meet together, the Pharisees and the Herodians counseled together on how to destroy Jesus. But we've seen this again in Mark eleven eighteen. And in 12.12, that the chief priests and the scribes wanted to destroy him. And this hatred of Jesus by these groups has been going on through most of Jesus' ministry. And did you catch something? Did you catch the word stealth there in verse 1? That means to take advantage through craft or underhanded methods. They were looking for a way, they were looking for any way, a secret way, to arrest Jesus. But they had a problem. Look at verse 2. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. All throughout Mark's gospel, we have seen this. The Jewish leaders have feared the people. We saw that time and time again, that they feared the crowds. They've wanted to move against Jesus, but they feared the people. They feared what might happen. Now, that fear is compounded. It's the Passover. And the population inside Jerusalem, Jerusalem has skyrocketed. Some believe that the population around the Passover increased to massive numbers. I read one estimate. There's many estimates out there. But I read one that claimed the average population of Jerusalem was around 40,000. Around the time of Passover, it's estimated to have swelled to 250,000. That's a lot of people. And remember, Jerusalem's not a very big city. That's a lot of people in a small area. So the Sanhedrin is in fear of a riot. If we do something, if we make the wrong move at the wrong time, we could upset all these people. There could be a riot on our hands. And there's a lot of people, which means that Rome is going to have more of a presence You've seen police have more of a presence at a big event with a lot of people. Same idea. Rome's going to have a bigger presence here in Jerusalem because there's a lot of people. They're going to try to keep order. It's a high-energy environment. And as we all know, where there's more people, there's more chance of crazy. It's just true. I remember several years ago. It's been several years ago. Sadly, it's been several years ago now. But I remember the days, days of the Decatur celebration, and it was crazy. People were everywhere. And I remember there was one time our family went to see For King and Country, which was an awesome concert, but that's another point. For King and Country, they played a concert, and Heather and I were literally clinging to our kids, like, do not get lost. You get lost in a sea of people. We'll never find you. Think of that kind of environment here in Mark 14. And the Sanhedrin know, we move at the wrong time. We do the wrong thing at the wrong time. This could go crazy. And this attitude, that's what we see in the Jewish leaders right now. Open antagonism. Open antagonism. They want Jesus dead. They have wanted him dead for a long time. Now, open antagonism is something that we may not see a whole lot of here in America, but we do see it. And we may not see it to the degree that other people on other parts of the world see it, but we do see it. I was watching one time a video of a group of Christians, I think it was, they were in New York, and they were handing out tracts 
handing out gospel tracts. Perhaps some of you have done this before, handed out gospel tracts to try to people, get people interested or at least thinking about the gospel. And in this video, this young Christian was handing out tracts. He was in this public area, and from out of nowhere, a random man grabbed him, shoved him up against a wall, and just kept walking. Just boom. No word, just an aggressive physical reaction. And the young man was stunned, as you can imagine, and he, he couldn't believe what had just happened. And then I, I wish I could remember what he said. He said something to the man as the man was walking off, and it was something loving, something kind. I don't remember what it was. I wish I could. But he responded kindly as Christians should in that situation. Now, I know that illustration is mild in comparison to what our brothers and sisters face in many parts of a hostile world. But still, even in the United States, we see this. We see open antagonism toward Christ and anyone who represents Christ. We see people who want nothing to do with Jesus. And the truth is, you and I may encounter this, and the truth is, as our world gets worse and worse, you and I may encounter it more often. As we strive to serve the Lord, we will meet up against people who are antagonistic toward Christianity. You may have already done so. You might be able to come up and tell me stories of people that you've talked to or people that you've come in contact with who were antagonistic toward Jesus Christ. You might meet, probably will meet people who are antagonistic toward Jesus Christ who will intentionally try to damage your reputation or intentionally try to, to damage your career advancement or whatever it is simply because they don't like you and they don't like your God. What are you going to do? Some of you might even be in a very difficult situation right now because it's not those out there, it's family. It's extended family or family in your home that is antagonistic toward you because you claim Jesus Christ. Perhaps for you, family gatherings are painful because you have that one or more relative who just makes the whole thing miserable for you. Others of you might struggle with neighbors. You hate to see them out in their yard when you've got to go out in yours because they're going to be antagonistic toward you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to say something. How do we respond? You know, in Matthew chapter 5, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. And within that sermon, he says this. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, as difficult as it might be, God wants us to love our enemies. God wants us to love those who hate us. He wants us to pray for those who persecute us. And so my challenge would be, my brothers and my sisters, love them. How do we do that? That can look differently in different situations, but I would say don't shy away from them. Don't avoid them. Engage them if, in conversation if you can do so peacefully. Find out if they like coffee and buy them a coffee. Take them donuts, make them a meal. Simply talk with them, ask them questions. Maybe they'll open up. You might find that their antagonism toward Christianity comes from some emotional scar in their past. Maybe they've never actually experienced the love of Christ. Maybe you have an opportunity to show them what a Christian is supposed to be. And never, ever undervalue the power of prayer. And I know that prayer can be kind of Christianese language. It can kind of sound like a pat answer. You know, oh, just pray for them. It'll be okay. But that's the wrong attitude. When I say pray for them, it's not a simplistic answer to a hard situation. I'm encouraging you to go to the God of the universe and commune with him about people who are troubling in your life. Take it to the Lord in prayer. We sang about that, the first song. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And don't ever think that because someone is so antagonistic toward the gospel that they are beyond the Lord's reach. Remember Saul? 
You could argue Saul was one of the most antagonistic people toward Jesus who ever lived. And then later in life, in his own words, he writes this, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So keep pursuing those who are antagonistic toward Christ. You don't know the seeds that you could be planting for the gospel. Now, let's turn our focus from out there to in here. Are we antagonistic toward Jesus? In many ways, no. We couldn't be, or we wouldn't be Christians. But, can we still openly reject Jesus? Or better put, can we openly reject something he wants us to do? Christians can say no to God. They can, some, they can read something in God's word that might rub them the wrong way and think, I can't believe that. I can't do that. That standard is too high. God cannot expect that of me. For instance, the passage I just read in Matthew 5 about loving our enemies. Some of us, that might rub the wrong way. That's a hard pill to swallow. I can't do that. And we can respond and say, no, God, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to love so-and-so. I'm not going to treat them like you want me to treat them. The pain that they have caused is too great. You ever felt that way? I have. Does God's word set standards that are too high? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. That is too high for us to uphold in our own human strength. How then can we uphold such high standards? On our knees on our knees in prayer, totally submitted to the work that Christ is doing in our hearts. That's how. You know, one time I was watching one of those, I forget what it was, like one of those 2020 shows or something about a man who had murdered another man and he was incarcerated and the man's mother that he had murdered came to visit him in prison. They started up a relationship and she got to the point where she could forgive him. That doesn't just happen. That's the work of Jesus Christ in our hearts. And when we're on our knees and submitted to the work he's doing in us, that's how we say yes to Jesus, even when he's asking us to do things that we look at ourselves and think, that's impossible. Submit to the work he's doing in you. That's the first response we see from the text. Here's the second we can reject Jesus through misplaced priorities. We can reject Jesus through misplaced priorities. Now, I'm going to explain that in a minute. But you don't have to openly, antagonistically reject Jesus. You can actually be kind of indifferent or kind of casual and still reject Jesus. Let's look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, that is the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table... Let me just interject here. The scene shifts. We're in Bethany, and we're with this man called Simon the leper. Now, often people develop nicknames by either things that they did or things that happened to them, and that's no different than today. Well, way back, not, well, yeah, way back years ago when I was in college, I have to admit it. Way back when I was in college, this freshman came in one time, and his name was David. And I think it was the first week that he was there at college, he came to play pool with us. And he was awful at pool. And so they started calling him Pool Shark. And then they shortened it to Shark. And for the next four years, that was his name. I think there were people who didn't even know his real name. That's kind of what happened here. Simon the leper, it's likely that he had been a leper possibly a leper that had been healed by Jesus. He couldn't have been a leper at the time of Mark 14 because he wouldn't have been allowed to be around anybody. No one would want to be around him. But he probably had leprosy, possibly was even healed by Jesus, and he was known as Simon the leper. Great nickname, right? 
And that's why Mark has identified, or probably why Mark identifies him this way. Mark also could have specifically identified this man because it's possible that Mark's initial readers from the church of Rome knew him and they could quickly put the pieces together. But Jesus is here at Bethany. And you may remember that I told you during Jesus' Jerusalem ministry, he would go and minister at Jerusalem, then he would go back to Bethany and he'd spend the night. And possibly here at this man, Simon the leper's house, Jesus would minister, come back to Simon's house or another house, and he would spend the night. But what we may not catch in verse 3 is that this is not chronological. John, the book of John tells us that Mark 14, 3 through 9 actually happened six days before the Passover. But in our opening verse in Mark 14, 1, we're told that it was two days before the Passover. What happened? Did Mark confuse his timing? No. This is another one of Mark's sandwich stories. It's been a while since we talked about this, but Mark uses this technique, this sandwich technique, where he opens up with a topic and then he fills something else in the middle, and then he closes with a topic very similar to the opening topic. And why does he do that? He does that because he's wanting you, he's wanting to draw your attention to the two events and how they compare and how they contrast. The last time we saw this was in chapter 11 when Mark talked about the fig tree. He talked about the fig tree, then Jesus went in and he threw people out of the temple, and then we come back to the fig tree, and the fig tree that Jesus had cursed earlier is now dead. What was his point? His point was showing that just that the fig tree was a picture of Jerusalem. It was a picture of the temple. It was a picture of the religious leaders and how they had failed Jesus and how their ministry had rotted. Here in Mark 14, Mark is contrasting the enemies of Jesus, that is the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas, with the woman. Let's keep reading. Verse, verse 3. A woman came, or verse 4, sorry. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, I want you to get the picture of what's going on here. Jesus is reclining. Now, back then, you would eat actually laying down on a couch, or if you were poor, laying down on the floor, and you would prop yourself up on one arm, and you would eat, and your feet would be away from the food which was appropriate because back then they wore sandals and it was dusty or if it had been raining, it would be muddy and you kept that dirty part of you away from the food. I think we'd all agree that was a sanitary thing to do. Now, it comes, in comes this woman as Jesus is eating with other people, the disciples, there's probably other guests. And Mark doesn't name her, but we know from the Gospel of John that this is Mary, Mary the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary comes in and she takes this alabaster flask of ointment. Now, back then, the wealthier women would wear these, these little alabaster flasks of perfume. They would wear them around their neck, and it was the way that they would preserve the perfume in this little flask. But they would wear it, as, as women often do today, with fragrance, with perfume. And this was nard, or also called spike nard. It was a pleasant-smelling oil from the root of a nard plant, which was imported from India it was very expensive. So you would preserve the oil. You wouldn't want to use it. You would preserve it in this alabaster or marble flask. And then, the, and like I said, the women would wear them around their neck. She takes this and she breaks it and she pours it over Jesus' head. Why? Well, it was a custom back then to pour oil over an honored guest. If you were an honored guest that went to someone's house, it was a custom to have oil poured on you as a way of showing you honor. I want to differentiate something because oil was also poured on people to anoint them for certain tasks. You might remember that kings were anointed with oil. Priests were anointed with oil. But don't confuse that with what's going on here. Mary's not anointing him in the sense of anointing him as king. It's not, a, it's not a picture of his kingship here. She is simply signifying that she is honoring Jesus. This is an honoring type of gesture done out of love. Normally, by the way, this gesture would have been done with something a lot cheaper, olive oil or something else, but she takes the most expensive thing, the most expensive oil that she probably has, 
and she pours that on Jesus. Read on. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now Mark, again, is kind of being vague. He's being a little bit generous here. Again, John tells us that the person who spoke up was Judas. But likely, with that word some there here in Mark, likely there were other disciples, perhaps even other guests, that kind of joined in with Judas in scolding Mary about what she'd done. And they point out that this ointment could have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor, and they see it as a waste. 300 denarii, by the way, that was about a year's wages. A denarius was a day's wage, so if you take the number of years in a, or number of days in a year, you subtract the Sabbaths and subtract other days that they weren't permitted to work, you'd end up with around 300 days. So it was a year's wages. And think about that. Think about an ointment that you would spend a whole year's wage on. Just out of curiosity, I looked up what are the most expensive perfumes you can buy today. Just from what I found, and I mean a very quick Google search, just what I found, the most expensive one I saw was called Chanel Gardenia Les Exclusivis de Chanel. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. For a bottle of 30.4 ounces, $17,000. It's a little steep. The text tells us that some were indignant. Now, like I said, we know that Judas was the spokesman here, and we also know, because John tells us that Judas didn't care about the poor, that maybe this group really wasn't caring about the poor. Maybe that's not exactly the motive behind here, but definitely, the mo- the, definitely what's coming out are misplaced priorities. Whomever's speaking here, whomever's feeling this way, their priorities are misplaced. Even if there was genuine care for the poor, even if someone in this group really did care about the poor and really did think to themselves this could have been used for better purposes, their priorities were misplaced. What Mary is doing, and I told you that she is attributing honor. Now, I'm going to talk more about Mary's response later, but for now, I want to focus on the sum here that's spoken of Because this is very important to us as Christians. We get this confused all the time. The sum in our passage are more focused, or at least they perceive to be more focused, on doing good deeds rather than on Jesus Christ. And Christians, including myself, we make this mistake all the time. It's a reverse of priorities. I read about a football coach this week who divorced his wife of 26 years when he left coaching college team football and became the head coach of a national football team. He said that he needed a wife while coaching on the college level for social functions and to show families that he would be looking out for their sons. But in pro football, she was an unnecessary accessory and a distraction to winning. Winning football was his number one priority and his two sons second. My friends, that man's priorities were greatly mixed up. In contrast to that, some of you know this, Tom Landry, former coach of the Dallas Cowboys, said, the thrill of knowing Jesus is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I think God has put me in a very special place and he expects me to use it to his glory in everything I do, whether coaching football or talking to the press. I'm always a Christian, Christ first, family second, and football third. Now that man has his priorities in order. How do Christians get their priorities misplaced? It's an easy thing to do. There are a number of things that are plainly just a mix of priorities. Any sin that I am harboring is placing priority on that thing above God. And those are typically, not always, but typically easy to spot. However, there are priorities in our life that we get misplaced. There are things that we switch around that we don't even know we're doing. And I'm going to give you three. There's many, but I'm going to give you three ways that we 
often misplace our priorities. The first is this, just as illustrated in our passage, good before God. We mix up our priorities when we get good before God. That is, we focus on good things and doing good things over God. That is a mix-up of priority. The sum here did it in verse 4. They would rather have this ointment sold, the proceeds given to the poor, than given to Jesus. Good before God. Now, there's nothing wrong with good deeds. I mean, we're supposed to do good deeds. Ephesians 2.10 even tells us that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. The problem comes when those good works are the focus instead of God. And this happens in Christian circles when our service becomes our everything. I serve, I do this, I do that, I find my joy in what I do for God instead of God. This, by the way, illustrates the life of the Pharisees. Throughout the gospel, they did the good works of the Lord, but they were motivated not by serving God out of love, but serving God out of earning favor. That's legalism. And if we're not careful, that same motive can sneak into our hearts as well. How many times have you approached service, have you approached doing something good and thought in the back of your mind, this will please God? That's not gospel focus. That's legalism focus. That's an attitude of I do to get, not of not I do because I love. And there's a world of difference between those two things. Here's another way Christians misplace their priorities, family over God. When we emphasize our family above the Lord, our priorities are misplaced. Now, I'm not saying don't love your family because that would be hypocritical to what the Bible says. We're supposed to love our family. But if we're always family-oriented, if we are sacrificing commitments to the Lord in order to serve our family, that's a problem. And by the way, The intentions might be good, but if we're sacrificing the Lord for our family, we're not going to result in a healthy family. Our families need to see our commitment to the Lord. Our families need to see our love to the Lord. They need to see us worshiping at church. They need to see us fellowshipping in small group. They need to see us in an attitude of genuine love through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our families need to see that, and that will foster a healthier family. Here's the third way, career before God. When our focus is on how can I better myself, how can I climb the corporate ladder, how can I make more money, our focus is off. And here's the thing, we can make all the excuses in the world and try to sound smart and think to ourselves, I'm doing this for X amount of reasons and this and that and the other, but in reality, we've made our career an idol. We put advancement, we put our career before God. Like I said, there's many other ways we can do this and get our priorities mixed up, but those are three that I wanted to point out to you. Good before God, family before God, and career before God. Now, here's the thing. I told you a few minutes ago, this is sneaky. It's not always easy to see when we've done this. How do I know? How do I know when I'm putting other things above Jesus? I think there's a good test. Ask yourself this question. Where do my thoughts go? Where do you find your thoughts going? Just naturally. Where do you find them going? What are you thinking about? Is it work? Is it this thing? Is it that thing? What is it? Where do your thoughts go? That is most likely a clue to where your treasure is. Where do your thoughts go? And this is exactly what we see in the text, a group of people who would rather do good or rather appear to look good instead of honoring Christ. Third point, our third negative response to Jesus is this. We can reject Jesus through failing to come to him for him. Let's read verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, Judas has only been mentioned one time up to this point, and that was in Mark 3.18 when Mark was identifying all, of the, um, all the disciples. You may remember that. 
Judas Iscariot, by the way, his name is Iscariot, that is likely derived from the town of his origin. We're not totally sure on that, but it's likely. He was one of the 12. And it's important for us to remember he was one of the 12. He was with them when Jesus healed the lepers. He was with them when the demon-possessed were free. He was with them when Jesus multiplied the bread and fish. He was with them when Jesus walked on water. He was with them when Jesus was teaching. He saw how Jesus outwitted the other religious leaders time and time again. He was there. He experienced it. He was one of the ones sent out with the power to heal and cast out demons. And yet, he chose to betray Jesus. Why? Scholars have wondered why. What was it that caused Judas to betray his Lord and Savior after everything that he had experienced? Could it have been what happened in verses 3 through 9? We're going to get there, but Jesus rebukes the people who talked to Mary this way. Could that have been it? Could it have been that when Jesus got to Jerusalem, Judas was among those expecting Jesus to conquer the Romans and set up his kingdom, and then he didn't do it? We're not told exactly, but one thing is clear. He wanted something from Jesus, not Jesus. He didn't want him for him. He wanted to get something from him. And when that didn't pan out, he decided he was going to make a profit. He decided to gain whatever he could from Jesus instead of coming to Jesus for Jesus. So he goes to those who are openly antagonistic, knowing they want him. He goes, and the text tells us that the chief priests and Judas worked out a deal. He would deliver Jesus. They would pay him. He exchanged God Almighty for a few coins. And by the way, it says that the chief priests were glad. This was their golden opportunity. This is the thing that they were looking for to be able to arrest Jesus. Even though we know the story and how it pans out, and they don't wait for the feast to be done. They don't wait because this is a golden opportunity. Now they have a person on the inside. It doesn't matter that the celebrations are going to be going on. It's too good to pass up. Oh, and by the way, ultimately it was part of God's plan. They may have wanted to wait till after the feast, but God had a plan beneath that that was going to trump their plan. Judas rejects Jesus because Jesus didn't give him what he wanted. He wanted something from Jesus, but Jesus didn't get it. Jesus didn't give it. He didn't want Jesus himself. And what happens when we come to Jesus to get something? We're disappointed. Because Jesus is not our lackey. He's not here to serve our every whim. Jesus wants to give us himself a much greater treasure. You know, in a marriage relationship, if someone comes in the marriage expecting to get something from their spouse other than their spouse, the relationship is set up for ruin. Someone's going to get hurt. The same thing is true about God. When we come hoping to get something from God, we're going to walk away hurt and disappointed when we're the ones to blame. You know what the problem is? You know what this kind of relationship is? It's a commodity relationship. It treats Jesus as a commodity. We come to him with a list of expectations, and when he doesn't meet those expectations, we're hurt and confused. Some come to Jesus for fire insurance. Perhaps you've heard that term. They just want to avoid hell. They're not interested in him. They're interested in avoiding hell. People come to, come to Jesus because it's tradition. It's just what we've always done. It's what our parents did. It's what our grandparents did. So we come to church, and we do the Jesus things. 
People come to Jesus because they want something in their life. They want peace. They want security. They want something else. And don't think for a moment that Christians like you and me are immune to such a trap. We fall into this way of thinking all the time. I do. I fall into this way of thinking all the time. How many times in your life has something not gone the way you thought and your response was, why, God? I thought you would give me fill in the blank. When we come to Jesus expecting something, we're treating our relationship with him like, like a business or a consumer relationship. In a business or consumer relationship, as long as both parties are, are getting what they signed up for, all is well. But the moment one party can't provide for the other, we look somewhere else. Think about shopping. The reason you go to a specific store, the reason you visit a specific website is because they give you a product at the best deal. But the moment that the price goes up or the moment they drop that product, see you. Looking somewhere else. And I'm not saying that's wrong. That's a consumer relationship. That's just the way it is. But that's not the relationship Jesus calls us to. He doesn't want us in a consumer relationship. He wants us in a covenant relationship. He wants us to commit to following him no matter what. Now, in a covenant relationship, both parties commit to each other. They bring their best. In marriage, each spouse is supposed to bring 100%. Have you ever heard of that? Have you ever heard somebody say that, you know, spouse brings 50, you bring 50? Forget that. Spouse brings 100, you bring 100. That's the way it's supposed to work in a marriage relationship. But we do this with Christ, where we're, we are to come to Christ, rather, in a covenant relationship. But here's the thing. We got nothing we can bring. Well, let me clarify. We do have one thing we can bring to Jesus. Our neediness of him. Our complete and desperate need of him. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not come to me and bring me this, that, the other, but come to me, you who are labor, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And here's the crazy thing. When we commit to Jesus like that, when we come into a covenant relationship with him, when we give him our desperate need of him, he gives us himself. Jesus is the giver. We are the receiver. We come to him with our need for him, and he gives us himself. And what happens? The receiver, that's us, we get the gift, which is Jesus, and the giver, that's God, he gets the glory. And that's the way it's supposed to work. The receiver gets the gift. The giver gets the glory. That's the kind of relationship Jesus wants with us. Now, doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound better than anything that we could possibly think of that we want from Jesus? Stop coming to him. Let's stop coming to him with our silly expectations and just come to him for him. And by the way, while I'm talking about this, if you're sitting there in this room right now or if you're watching online and you've never come to Christ with your desperate need of him, now's the time. Come to him for him. Stop running. Stop making excuses. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. Repent. That word means to turn away from. Repent from your sin and embrace Jesus. If you want to know more, come talk to me after the service. But don't reject him any longer. Well, those are the ways we reject Jesus. Or, the, or rather, maybe I should say it this way. Those are the ways that rejection is expressed. Now, let's back up. We looked at these three ways. Let's turn now to how we accept Jesus. You notice I skipped over verses 6 through 9. That was intentional. Let's back up. Let's go to that pa passage because what we have here is a beautiful picture from Mary of just how to accept Jesus. So the group had just scolded her. Remember that. They called this a waste of ointment. Now go to verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. 
Your final point this morning is this. We accept Jesus by giving him our all. We accept Jesus by giving him our all. That is, as I just said, all of our neediness, all of our desperation for him. Mary had just used up this precious ointment that cost a year's wages, which was no meager sacrifice, possibly the most precious and most expensive thing that she had. She scolded for this act of honor when Mary is saying, you are worth more than the greatest treasure I have. And Jesus goes on in verse 7 to say, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. Now, in no way here is Jesus degrading the poor or disregarding the poor. He's not suggesting that the poor are not important. In fact, he's affirming that doing good toward those in poverty is a good thing. He's not saying don't do good. He's actually pointing something out that Mary has caught onto and the disciples have failed to see. There will be an opportunity to serve the poor is what Jesus is saying. You'll always have the poor. There will be opportunities for that. But my time is short. You will not always have me. Mary has chosen to honor Jesus with this precious oil because Jesus doesn't have much time left. In fact, look at the next verse. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She's done what she could. She brought the best that she had. And she's anointed his body beforehand for burial. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus is being prepared for burial. Did Mary know that? I think it's unlikely. It's possible. After all, Jesus had explained things three times to the disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to die, he's going to rise. Word could have gotten around back to Mary. She could have put the pieces together. But I think it's unlikely. I think more what's going on here is that she's simply demonstrating her love for him and honoring him with this gesture. Either way, Jesus accepts this as an anointing for his burial. And by the way, This is the only anointing he will receive. It was common back in that day when a person died, you would anoint their body with oils and spices before burial. But you may remember that when Jesus died, it was right before the Sabbath. They had time to put him in the tomb and that was it. There was no time to anoint the body. In fact, what were the women going to do on the day of his resurrection? anoint the body, but they never got the chance. This is his own anointing. This is his only anointing. Jesus continues and says, and truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What an honor. We remember Mary. We remember this event. I can remember hearing about this story as a kid in Sunday school, Others despised her, but Christ honors her. And a little side note, when we live our lives for Christ and honoring Christ, honor is coming. In this story, though, we have a beautiful picture of what it looks like to accept Jesus. It looks like this. It looks like giving him your all, giving him your everything, letting nothing stand in the way. Jesus was too precious for Mary to spare her most prized possession. So let me ask you, church, what do you hold on to tighter than Jesus? What treasure holds your heart more than him? What is it? Is it a possession? Is it a relationship? Is it security? Is it a sin? What holds your heart? What idol is too close to your heart? Release it into the hands of Jesus. How do we do that? Start talking to him about it. Start asking him what it is if you don't know. And start being open with him about this. And ask him for the strength to release it. 
How did Mary respond? Well, instead of antagonism, she embraced him. Instead of misplaced priorities, she's honoring him. Instead of coming to him to get something, she's giving her all. How do we do this? We might have to release something that we've been clinging to. We might have to search our hearts and see what it's holding on to. But most of all, most of all, how we do this is we look to our Savior. Jesus wants us to come to him by giving him our all. He wants everything, nothing held back. Does he have the right to demand that of us? Does Jesus have the right to demand these things of us? Mary's gift to Jesus was, a, was beautiful in that she gave her most precious possession to Jesus. And in just a couple days, just a couple days from this event, Jesus will give himself. God the Father will give his most precious possession for us. Just as Mary broke the alabaster flask and poured it on Jesus' head, so God is going to break his son and pour his blood out as a pleasing sacrifice. Why? So that you and I can be washed in the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. Sin washed away. Don't you see that when you choose to reject Jesus, no matter on what kind of level, you reject the most precious gift ever given? What if Jesus, think about this, what if Jesus had rebuked Mary? What if he joined in with the crowd? What if she'd given him the most precious gift and he cast it aside? That's what it's like when you and I cast aside him the most precious gift of all. There's nothing worth hanging on to that's greater than our Savior. Look to him. Look to Christ as your greatest treasure. When Jesus died with the two thieves hanging on his right and left, the one despised him, rejected him, but the other thief accepted him, asking Jesus to remember him when he came in his kingdom. And Jesus responded by saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Jesus, you are all. You are everything. You did not hold back even your life. Father, you did not hold back the most precious thing you have, your son, You gave him for us. You gave us your all. It is a horrible thing to reject Jesus Christ. It is a sad, tragic, dishonoring action. And it can happen in several different ways, but it all amounts to the same thing. It all amounts to rejecting the most precious gift. Lord, forgive us. Even of the ways we as Christians reject you or what you want of us, Forgive us. Help us to embrace you more. Help us to see the idols in our lives that captivate us more than you do. Give us the strength to reject those things and embrace you instead. Deepen our walk with you, we pray in Jesus' awesome name. Amen.